So we have been um, talking about what it means to be the chosen people of God the last couple of weeks here. The last two weeks I've been critiquing this rather grisly idea that uh, the chosen people of God are those who God chose before the foundation of the world. He predestined some to be in and others to be out and tried to show that the passages that that, is, that idea is based on uh, are better interpreted in different ways. Uh, and then we looked at last week how when you're one of the chosen people of God, uh, there's two things that are ordained for you. One is that you will receive blessings and the other one is that you'll be a blessing. And so we talked about receiving the blessing last week. And now, this morning, we're going to talk about being a blessing. Uh, we're chewing on the same three verses that we've been chewing on for four weeks, and um, we're going to be chewing on these more, because uh, there's a whole lot to chew on here. These are very chewy verses, let me tell you. Um, you know, that, it's the, thing, the Word of God is like this, where um, if, you, if you savor it, just don't just look for information. Internalize it. Chew on it. Go over and over it again. And you'll find, often at least, that uh, there are layers of meaning that come out, that aren't there on the first uh, pass. As you chew on things, you start to see things you didn't see before. Uh, God wants us to pursue him, and so there's like hidden treasures there. Uh, that's why we take our time as we're going through this. Uh, not in a hurry. So we chew on them over and over again. So let's chew on these three verses again. What do you say? All right, let's do it. Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. The apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Do not lie to each other. Since you have already taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, that new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. What a beautiful new self it is. And here in this new self, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Why? Because Christ is all in this new self, and in this new self, he is in all. So all those silly distinctions that the world makes are absolutely insignificant when you're putting on your new self. Hallelujah. This was written 2,000 years ago, and I submit to you the church still has to this day not lived up to that one. But we'll talk about that uh, in later weeks. Therefore, Paul says, as God's chosen people, since this is the foundation here, everything is, the, the ethics is predicated on the reality of being a, the chosen person of God. Holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with, a, with compassion. Wear that every day. Clothe yourself with kindness every day. Clothe yourself with humility, gentleness, and patience. Put on those clothes, that new self, renewed in the knowledge of uh, the Creator, in the image of the Creator, that beautiful new self. Put on those clothes and do not ever take them off. Hallelujah. Pray with me here for a moment. Abba Father, I just thank you for the, your presence here during the worship, uh, the joy that's present here during the worship, the freedom that's present here during the worship, your spirit who has been here during the worship. And now, God, I ask that you, Holy Spirit, come and in the same way, even with a double portion, invade this message and infuse it with your authority. And God, I pray you, for every person in this congregation and maybe listening through podcasts, television, wherever, whatever they, wherever they are, whatever they're doing, I pray, God, you just use this message to go into our minds and invade our hearts and give us a slice, a slice, a glimpse, a taste of your profound love for all human beings, that love that could draw us out of ourselves and 
start to live a life that is inviting to others. Give us your heart, Father. We are your children. We're asking for your heart. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, amen, amen, amen. So last week at the end of the message, we talked about the blessings that come with uh, being a chosen person of God. I am dehydrated. And uh, we said that it's like, it's like a train. If you get on a train, you're, you, you go to the destination that the train was predestined to go to. And so if you get on the train of the chosen people of God, uh, it's predestined that you will go to this destination. And that destination is just, you're blessed with every spiritual blessing. It is the land of blessing. Now, it's not predestined that you'll get on that train. It's not predestined that you won't get on that train. Uh, that is, to some degree, at least up to you. You have to yield to the Holy Spirit. You could never get on that train with faith if God wasn't working in your heart and empowering you to do it. But he never forces us to get on that train. We have to yield. And then he pulls us onto that train. And when you're on that train, all that's predestined for that train becomes predestined for you. And that is a whole world of blessing. Praise God. So it's a blessed thing to be one of the chosen people of God. He chooses all who choose him. But it's not just a blessing to be a child of God. To be a child of God, we're now going to see, means that we are ordained to be a blessing. And the fact that we're ordained to be a blessing is as important as the fact that we are ordained to receive a blessing. Uh, I so want us to get this in our hearts this morning. Now, most churches, in my experience at least, when you talk about the church's responsibility to the world... Most go right to evangelism. We are called to bring the good news to the lost in the world. And that is true. We, however, have tended to emphasize the fact that our responsibility to the world goes way beyond that. That we are called to manifest the self-sacrificial character of God to all people at all times. And are called to sacrifice for them. So we around here talk a whole lot about how God calls us to take responsibility for the poor and the homeless, and those who are marginalized, the oppressed. So much so that I think perhaps we do it to a fault. Like I've gotten a little convicted about this this week, that um, we don't talk very much about evangelism, partly as a reaction because it's overemphasized in other places. Um, but today I want to talk about evangelism. Uh, and... I know that that has a negative connotation for a lot of folks, including me. And there's a lot of screwy ideas out there about what evangelism is. The very word maybe makes you a little defensive. And, and so a lot of what I'm going to be doing this morning is going to be trying to recast a vision for evangelism, uh, reframing it uh, to give us uh, a, a new angle on it. So we're entitling this message, uh, Evangelism Reimagined, the reframing of evangelism. Uh, it's not maybe what you think it is. I, I will be honest with you that, uh, given my past experience, I don't even like the word, really. I wish I had a different word. Uh, the word itself was good. It means to bring good news, but it just has, it, in my mind, it's it as well as the word witnessing. We used to always talk that way. Let's go out witnessing. Have you witnessed somebody lately? And it's wrapped up with all sorts of manipulation and shame and guilt and awkward conversations and passing out tracts and and acting like a door-to-door hairbrush salesman or something where you're just trying to sell something. It really is not positive. When I first became a Christian in that Pentecostal church I just referred to a little bit ago, this fundamentalist Pentecostal church, 
uh, we were often uh, guilted into evangelizing. I heard preachers say things like, if someone goes to hell that you could have shared Jesus with that you didn't, their blood is on your hands. Yeah, some of you have been in that kind of environment. Or, or you have preachers would say things like, when was the last time you won somebody to Christ? <laughs> How many people did you witness to this week? What will you say to your friends on that dreadful judgment day when they look at you facing the eternal perdition of hell and they say, why didn't you share Christ with me? I would have believed, but you didn't share Christ with me. How many of you won to Jesus? And the assumption here is that God would leverage the eternal state of the people he died for on whether you were paying attention at a particular day or not and, and witness to them. Uh, but that's what I believed. That's what I was taught when I first became a Christian at the age of 17. And so as a result of that, I mean, I sometimes had an image in my mind of the, the judgment day where I'm going to be there at the gates of heaven and I'm going to be looking across this abyss and there's all these folks that I passed on the street or passed in school in the hallways or whatever, and they're going to hell, and they look at me and they go, Greg, why didn't you share Christ with me? You passed me in the halls, on the street, in the stores. I live right next door to you, but you didn't tell me. And now they're going to hell, and I'm supposed to go to heaven and enjoy myself. It doesn't work. I, it was, it's, it's a terrible scene. What a burden to carry. And I'm, I'm nothing if not consistent. I, 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 oh, I'm consistent. So if that's the, if that's the deal then I've got to tell everybody about Christ, and I did. I was the most obnoxious person in my senior year in high school. I was, I'm so embarrassed when I think back on it. Uh, anyone in my class who was there my senior year in school, I, want to, I officially apologize to you. Please forgive me. Think of me as I was in the years before. Oh, that wasn't very good either, now that I think about it. But look at me now. So I, I was obnoxious. I tried to shove Jesus down everyone's throat. I don't want their blood on my hands. And then I, I and a friend spent a year going around. Once a week, we'd go door to door witnessing and uh, passing out tracts and telling people that they're going to go to hell unless they believe what we believe. And um, uh, you know, we didn't have a single convert in that whole year. But see, it really wasn't about, I, I don't think that hardly ever, I mean, a person's got to be really desperate for that to work. But uh, it wasn't about really getting the converts. It was about getting released from guilt, uh, not having the blood on my hands. I didn't want to face them on the judgment day and have to you know, give an account. So this way, if the judgment happens and they're going to hell, I, I, I could say, hey, you know, they'll say, why didn't you tell me? I'll say, I did. I left you a track. What more do you want? <laughs> Go to, no, never mind. <clears throat> Go to, never mind. So, so it, it was obnoxious. And, and it, so if you're here this morning and the word evangelism uh, it, it, it doesn't sit well with you. You associate with negative stuff and awkward conversations. I, I want you to know that I get it. I, I get it. And I, I want to promise you that as I'm going through this, I believe that that kind of evangelism that's wrapped up in guilt and manipulation and pressure, forcing awkward conversations that are totally unnatural, passing out tracts and all the rest, I think it is jacked up, messed up, screwed up, unbiblical, and certainly ineffective. And, and so you're not going to get that, all right? Um, but if that's the wrong way to do evangelism, what's the right way? I mean, the right response to the wrong way is not to say nothing. And I will confess that I think I've come close to being guilty of that. I have not uh, talked about this much at all. The right response to the wrong way of, of evangelizing is to say what the right way is. And that's what I want to share here in the next 25 minutes or so. I, I, I will warn you as I'm getting into this that... Um, 
Well, I'll just tell you that I, this week, came under some serious conviction. And um, I suspect that if you're really listening to me on this, uh, there's at least some people here, maybe a lot of people here, that will feel the same thing. I've said many times up here that my job is to invite you in on my misery. All right? That's the deal here. And so I, I don't want to be alone. Um, and I just want to encourage you to let that happen. If, there's, if you feel some conviction, don't do what the fallen old self-impulse is to do, and that is put up defenses, start making rationalizations, excuses, blah, blah, blah. No, just let it come. Just, just let it come. It doesn't feel comfortable, but we need it. If we're kingdom people, we've always got to be open to God convicting us, right? It's not about shame. Shame is never a kingdom thing. Shame is not good. That is of the enemy. But conviction is very good. Uh, it's the only way that God gets our attention to change fundamental aspects of the way that we do life, the rhythm, the pattern, the habits of our life. For that to change, we've got to come under conviction. And so just receive it, all right? Um, let God do his work. It's done in love, and um, he wants to change us. Okay, to talk about what evangelism is. Really, to talk about what the chosen people, what it is to be a chosen person. We've got to go back to ancient Israel. And so, uh, they're the first ones who are the chosen people of God. Now, God always works with a mustard seed principle. Mustard seed. He takes something very, very small and uses it to then grow something. He, goes, he always works from the small to the large, from the particular to the universal. And so, God's plan of salvation in history began by him calling one person, Abraham. And his plan was to take the mustard seed of Abraham to then bring about the mustard seed of the nation of Israel to bring about the kingdom of God on the whole earth. And so, from the start, God's heart, from the start, God's heart was for the world. His heart's always been for the world. People get this impression when they read the Old Testament that God was playing favorites and he only liked Israel. But you've got to know that the purpose for raising up Abraham and Israel was to reach the whole world. So right from the get-go, when God first starts talking to Abraham, brings him out of the land of Ur, and then he says this. He says, Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You will be blessed, and you'll be a blessing. The two go hand in hand and are equally important. But God's heart has always been for the whole world. You can see the importance of this global perspective by how frequently that theme is repeated in the book of Genesis. And so we find uh, in chapter 18, six chapters later, it says Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him, all the nations. And then four chapters later, he says, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. And then two chapters or four chapters after that, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. You get the point that God wants to use Abraham to bless all the nations, right? The calling of Abraham was not an end in and of itself. God didn't just like him more than other people. No, he was, he was chosen uh, for a special vocation. He was chosen to choose all. And so his offspring were to be the means by which God reached the entire globe. And so here's the plan unfolded like this. Uh, Abraham's offspring were the Hebrews, the Jews, and they ended up in Egypt in slavery. And they were there 400 years. And then God called him out of Egypt, uh, and right from the start, he says, I call you out to be a holy and distinct and a separate people. The calling out of Egypt wasn't just a geographical relocation. It was uh, a, a calling to a different life, to leave behind the ways of Egypt, which represent 
all the ways of the pagan uh, empires. They are to be a unique people, a holy. That's what the word holy means. We sometimes get this idea that holy is prissy or, or something, but it, it just means unique, distinct, consecrated to God. And uh, uh, in their uniqueness, it, it wasn't that God just wanted them to be superior to other nations. It wasn't that at all, in fact. God called them to be a unique and holy and separate people in order to offer the world something different. They're, they weren't to be a holy club, the special righteous people. They were rather to be distinct in order to offer the world something distinct. They were to be different in order to offer the world something different. They were chosen as a means of God to choose all. And so we read many passages in the Old Testament that are like Exodus 19, when the Lord says, Although the whole world earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You'll be for me. You're, you, there's a uniqueness here. You're going to be holy, which means set apart, consecrated, distinct. But you're, the reason you're going to be holy is that you're going to be priests. Now, the, word, the concept of priests is, is one who mediates God to people and people to God. A kind of go-between. And so the nation of Israel was to be the means by which people encountered God. Uh, they were called to be different as a way of attracting the world to Yahweh, bringing in the world, inviting the world to Yahweh. Israel was, you might say, God's mustard seed magnet. Their uniqueness and distinctness and blessing was to be a, an invitation and an attraction for all people to come to Yahweh. And so you have this refrain over and over again in the Old Testament, that Israel was to be the city set on a hill, the light, right, that, that all people could see that would draw people to Yahweh. And all throughout the Old Testament, you find this motif, this uh, prophesied future vision of a time when all the nations will come to Jerusalem or to the temple or to Mount Zion, and they will there bow before the one true God and leave behind their pagan sinful ways. Israel was chosen as a means to choose all. They weren't an end in and of themselves. No, they were to, to be the means by which God drew the rest of the world into the same covenant relationship he had with them. Now, if you've read your Old Testament, you know that that failed miserably. Um, Israel always had a hard time remaining distinct and separate, consecrated. They, like us, felt the pull to be like other people. They, they tended to blend in with the other nations, follow the ways of the other nations, get involved in the idolatry and the immorality of the other nations. They had a hard time staying distinct. And then on top of that, they forgot. They forgot that they were chosen as a means of choosing everybody. They forgot that they were called to be distinct in order to offer the world something distinct. They forgot that they were called to be priests that served the whole world. They, they ended up judging those that they were supposed to be serving. Uh, they, they saw their chosen status as a privilege, whereas it was supposed to be also a responsibility and a vocation. Uh, they came to see Yahweh as sort of their separate tribal god instead of the God of the whole earth. They forgot that God's heart is for everybody. They saw their chosen status as sort of making them just superior. We are God's favorites. And so they became inward-focused rather than global-focused. And for that reason, they broke covenant with God. Now the deal in the Old Testament, the arrangement was this. God said, okay, here's, here's the deal. If you will walk with me and keep covenant, I will protect you. In this violent world with all these violent, hostile nations around you, I will protect you. But if you don't, then you're on your own. 
And for centuries, God struggled with Israel to try to get them to keep covenant, but they always blended in with the other nations, and they always forgot that they were there to serve the other nations. And so there came a time when God saw he had no choice but to withdraw his protection, which was his judgment. The way God judges is he always withdraws his protection and allows evil to run its course. And so withdrawing his protection allowed the the violent, hostile, sinful nations around Israel to come, and they ransacked Israel, and they brought them into captivity. So when Jesus arrives on the scene, Israel had been, to one degree or another, under bondage to some other nation for almost 800 years. When Jesus arrives on the scene, it's obvious, to anyone who's got eyes to see, it's obvious that this old covenant did not work. It's obvious that... Uh, that covenant that was based on the law, the covenant that was nationalistic, and that covenant that was pr- always prone towards violence, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth thing, uh, that, that it was obvious that that, that that had failed. And I would, in fact, argue that that was part of the point of the old covenant. God was giving a negative object lesson. Uh, it, it, we'll see here in a moment that from the start, God, the promised seed was for, for, uh, that he gave to Abraham was Jesus, which means that Everything leading up to it was to lead up to Jesus. And God was giving a negative object lesson here to show that his will can never be established on earth through mere law and through nationalism and through violence. Rather, Jesus now offers a different covenant. Having 800 years of being under that failure, Jesus is saying, are you ready for something radically different? And so he inaugurates the new covenant. And the new covenant is not based on law. It's based on empowering, transforming grace. And the new covenant isn't uh, nationalistic from the get-go. God's not going to use a nation now. It, it's from the get from the start. It's it's it's, it's all inclusive. And this new covenant, rather than having this eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth mentality, this new covenant is rooted in a commitment to love our enemies and to throw off all violence. And that's the new covenant. So Jesus comes and he is the first to carry out God's plan for Israel. He's the first. Uh, faithful, sinless covenant keeper. In fact, Jesus embodies in his own being uh, all that God had planned for Israel. He is the one and only true servant of God. Plays the role that Israel was to play. In fact, we find revealed in the New Testament that Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham. Which means that everything that was preceding it was was foreknown that that was going to fail. And that leads to Jesus. And so Paul says this in, in uh, Galatians chapter 3. He says, the promises, referring back to Genesis 12 and 18 and the, all the ones that we read, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say and to seeds, plural, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham. And then Paul teaches that all who believe in Jesus are incorporated into Jesus. So all who believe in this one true seed are incorporated in this one true seed. And so all who believe in this descendant of Abraham are now made descendants of Abraham. The church, all who put their faith in Jesus Christ, uh, are now the children of Abraham. So, So Paul in that same chapter says this. He says, understand then that those who have faith are the children of Abraham. Because scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. And so that those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. 
What Paul is saying here is that as we are incorporated in the one true descendant of Abraham, we become, the church becomes, all who, has faith, all who have faith, they become the children of Abraham. Uh, this, the ones who, for whom it's promised that we will be a blessing to all nations. Christ is the first to fulfill this promise to bless all nations, and then we who are in Christ are then the ones who are promised to bless all nations. All who have faith, then, are playing the role that Israel played. In fact, all who have faith, Paul says, are the new Israel, the true Israel. He says this in Galatians chapter 6. He says, Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. That's the church, the Israel of God. And so all, follow this now, all that's true of Israel becomes true of us. They were called out of Egypt, we're called out of Egypt. They were, they were called to be holy and distinct, and we're called to be holy and distinct. Uh, they were called to be priests who mediate God's presence to the world, and we are called to be priests who mediate God's, God's presence to the world. They were called to be different, to offer the world something different, and we are called to be different, to offer the world something different. All that was true of, of ancient Israel becomes true of us. They were called to be the mustard seed magnet, and we, therefore, are called to be the mustard seed magnet. That's why Peter says, he takes this verse that was applied to Israel and he applies it to the church. In 1 Peter, he says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Why? So we can go, yippee, we're, we're special? No. He says, So that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Uh, to be the chosen people of God is to be, receive a blessing and to be a blessing. We have been blessed. We're called the royal uh, priesthood, a holy nation, the special possession of God. Yay! But we are that so that we can be this. And the this is to declare the praises to the world, to declare the praises of him who brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why? So that they too will be drawn out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so folks, what it means is that the church, us, if you're a believer... We don't exist for ourselves. We exist for the world. Our salvation, your salvation is not just for you. You're saved for the world. Your blessing isn't just for you. You're blessed for the world. Your, your chosen status isn't just for you. You're chosen to be a means by which others are chosen. Your chosen status isn't just a privilege to enjoy. It's a responsibility and a vocation. That's why Paul says that all who put their faith in Christ are ministers of the kingdom. All. Everybody who puts their faith in Christ is an ambassador of the kingdom of God. Everybody who puts their faith in Christ is called to be a minister of reconciliation. Everybody. Everybody say everybody. Everybody. It includes you if you're a person of faith. It includes me. We're called to be missionaries, ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation. Uh, see, this is, this is what I've seen this week that in, with a clarity I haven't ever seen before. And, and I, I feel a passion about it that I haven't, I've, I've never felt this degree before. And I felt a conviction about this that I've never felt about this before. And what it is is this, that, that living a life that attracts others into the kingdom is not a secondary aspect of the plan of salvation. It is an essential part of the reason why you are saved. Yes, God wants to save you because of you, right? God loves us and he wants us to be part of his, his eternal family. Yes, that's true, but that's only half the equation. Because the other half of the equation is that God wants everybody to be brought into the kingdom. And he relies on us to do it. 
Uh, it's not that their eternal welfare hangs upon what we do or don't do, but it is the case that this is our vocation. This, this is our, when we surrender to Christ, we're given a job description, and this is it. And this is our privilege. We're the means by which others are, are, are to be brought into the kingdom. And there's an urgency to this. The last thing Jesus says on earth before he ascends into heaven is, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God calls us to do that. Which means, folks, that we have this vocation, and it's the most important vocation we have. It's part of our identity. That, that call to be a blessing is, is as important as the call to receive the blessing, including the, the blessing of salvation. It means that before you're a husband or a wife, you are an ambassador of the kingdom of God. Before you're an American or a Korean or a Japanese or whatever nationality you, you are, you're an ambassador of the kingdom of God. Before you're a carpenter or a professor or a preacher or a janitor, you are an ambassador of the kingdom of God. Before you are a Republican or a Democrat or a socialist or a libertarian, you are an ambassador of the kingdom of God. Which means we should wake up every morning and look in the mirror and remind ourselves that we are a missionary. I am a missionary. I am an ambassador. My, the main thing I'm supposed to accomplish today is to be a missionary, an ambassador of the kingdom of God, a minister of reconciliation. And I don't know about you, but when I enter into that narrative, it reframes everything. It reframes everything. We're missionaries. Now, I'm not asking anyone to go out on a street and, and start forcing conversations and cramming Jesus down everyone's throat and trying to get strangers to repent of their sin and passing out tracts. Nothing. In fact, in fact as, as, as a leader in Woodland Hills Church, I'm going to ask you not to do that. I'm going to implore you, please don't do that. Because the truth is, I'll be honest, I am not a fan of street evangelism and, and uh, confrontational evangelism and hard sales evangelism and passing out tracts and the rest. I, I honestly think that more often than not, it does more harm than good. Some people feel like they're called to it. God bless them. I'm not going to judge them. Have fun. But it's not something I can encourage you to do. In fact, I want to encourage you not to do it. Uh, that, that's not, I don't think, the, the way that we're supposed to go about it. But we need to reframe, re-image, rethink evangelism. Think about it this way, okay? Oh, Lord, help me. I have, let's give me the gift of succinctness here. It's not, evangelism is not so much what we're called to do as it is something we're called to be, a people we're called to be. We're called to be the kingdom of God. We're called to manifest the character of God. And to be a missionary in this strange land, in this fallen world, means that we're to be that kingdom, manifesting that character in a way that invites others into the kingdom. We're to be who we're called to be, intersecting with the lives of others. And that draws them into the kingdom. I think it's something like this. You know, if, if you've been here for any length of time, you know that uh, my uh, early upbringing was not altogether positive. Um, my mom died when I was two, and then my dad remarried quickly out of necessity to have someone to raise his kids, and, and some marriages are made in heaven. This marriage was made in the other place, and there was warfare all the time. It was an angry household, and my mom, my stepmom, uh, when she got mad, and who knew when that was going to happen, she just snapped for no reason whatsoever. She became viciously, physically abusive. So I stayed away from home as much as possible. And sometimes I would go to other kids' houses, and I would just be so envious of their homes. Tommy, one of my best friends in Lansing, Michigan, they lived at the end of the street and I'd hang out at his house. And I remember this one particular lunch. The, his mom made us lunch. And I just was looking at the way she looked at him. I never get looked at like that. 
It's so loving, and she would touch him sometimes, tenderly. I, that never happened. She would say, I love you. I never heard that. Uh, it was, and, and as I saw the love and the kindness and tenderness and the compassion there, I wanted that. In fact, one time I asked her if she'd be my mom. <laughs> she said, sorry, I can't do that. Would you? But, see, I longed for that because I was made for that. that that's, that's what I needed. I was hungry for that. Well, folks, we are the family of God. Kingdom is a family, and, and we're to, as a family, manifest the love of the triune God. Put on the character of God. That's why Jesus prays that we would be one, even as he and the Father are one, that the world would know that he has been sent by the Father. We're to love with the kind of love that mirrors the love of the triune God. And when we do that, uh, then people will know that Jesus is for real. Everybody's hungry for this kind of love. Everybody's starving for this kind of love. They yearn for this kind of love. And, and, and so as we manifest it in a way that they can see it, it brings them in. It draws them in. And so, folks, it, it, it raises this question, how can we make space in our life to invite others in? See, the church tends to fall into the same sin that Israel fell into. We, on the one hand, have trouble being distinct from the rest of the culture, the rest of the world. We don't always manifest that unique, beautiful character. And then, on the other hand, we tend to forget that our salvation is not just for ourselves, but we're saved for others. And our chosen status isn't just for us, we're chosen for others. And it's not just a privilege, it's also a responsibility and a job. And the blessing isn't just for us, we're called to bless others. We're called to be a magnet to the rest of the world. So the question is, how do we live in a way that invites people in, that creates space for people to come and be part of our life? We're missionaries, we're called to this vocation, this is why we are here. So how can we create space? For others to be involved in our life. The, the natural fallen inclination is to live life as a closed circle. All of our time and all of our energy is spent on me and my own. My family and my friends. Don't have time for anyone else. Sorry. And, and see, that's convenient to, to live that way. And that's why most people do live that way. They live life in a closed circle. Uh, but see, if we're missionaries, if we're, if we're ambassadors, we cannot be dictated by convenience. Worldlings can, we understand that, but we're to live a different kind of a life, a life where we are inviting others in. And so the circle in our life can't be closed. Of course, we need to have time with our family and friends. That's wonderful, beautiful, and necessary. We have a responsibility for that, but the circle cannot be closed. There's got to be space in our life where we're letting people come in. And maybe that you've got a nice family and you've got a nice friends and a nice loving circle. But you know what? There's an abused kid down the block who doesn't and he's hungry for what you've got. And so the question is, how can we invite them to share in the same kind of love that we are having, the same kind of wholeness that we are experiencing, the same kind of joy that we have, the same kind of life that we have with, with Christ Jesus? How do we make space for others? And it says in Ephesians 5, one of my favorite passages, but there, there Paul says, live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. See, we're called to love others with the love of Christ. And he demonstrated his love for us by sacrificing his life. So the question we've got to live in, missionaries, is how can we sacrifice some of the convenience of our closed circle for the sake of others? We always say that the kingdom begins when the bleeding starts. Because the kingdom is all about sacrifice. It's all about Calvary. And so we've got to ask the question, how can we sacrifice some of the convenience of our closed circle, family and friends, in order to reach out and invite others to come in? Are we willing to be inconvenienced for the opening of the circle? Here's a conviction that God gave me, 
And I love to invite others in on my misery, so I'll throw it out there, see if it lands. But it seems to me, I, I, I felt like God was saying this. If you are a missionary, an ambassador of the kingdom, a minister of reconciliation, and that's your main job description, then it ought to be the case there's, that there's always at least one person, non-believer, that you're praying for and seeking God's wisdom about how to invite them in on a section of your life so they can see and experience the love of the family and to let that draw people in. And so I, I want to end with this challenge here. In fact, let's make it a reflection. Um, if it helps, close your eyes. Uh, you don't have to. A requirement, but Holy Spirit helps us to get honest. And by the way, when we play music, it's not to try to manipulate anyone. Someone had a, a, wrote me a letter on this. Are you trying to manipulate us? No, it's just that music is a gift of God that softens our heart. It makes us more pliable. So I, 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 I think for most people it helps. And so ask the Holy Spirit to show two things here. Number one, what area of your life maybe blends in too much with Egypt? What area of your life could you change? One area, just start, you've got to take a step before you run a marathon. So let's look at one thing. Is there one thing that you could today change to bring your life into alignment with that unique, distinct kingdom to display more the character of God over against the world? And then the second thing, Holy Spirit, help us on this. Are you willing to adjust the pattern of your life, the flow of your life, the rhythm of your life, in a way that inconveniences you, we have to sacrifice a little bit of your close circle. Are you willing to make that adjustment if God leads you to, to invite someone else in? And if you're a missionary, and everybody who says yes to Jesus is, then you have to say yes. And if you are having trouble saying yes, ask God to change your heart. Because you can't go forward until you do that. And then, if you're willing, and you submit to, to God, ask God to put on your heart, if you don't already have one, one person, one person that you suspect at least is a non-believer, and will you commit to praying? You start by praying. That's the first way to step out of your circle. It can't be the last step, however, but the first step is to pray for them. And then, pray for wisdom about how to go about beginning a relationship where the kingdom can begin to wear off on them. Evangelism should never involve, involve forced, unnatural, awkward conversations. It rather is just letting a person feel the attraction of the family, the love that they're hungry for. And as they do, if a question comes up, you naturally answer it. It's all natural. I'm going to close in a prayer to seal whatever you just received. I want to tell you that if you uh, want to stay seated for a little longer, if God's working on your heart, don't rush that. Just, if God's doing something, stay there. Um, if you want to come forward for prayer, I encourage you to come forward for prayer, and I'd like to ask the prayer ministers to come up here. And um, any need that you have, they, they'd love to pray with you. But Abba, Father, thank you for calling us to this wonderful, wonderful privilege that we have to be your ministers, to be your missionaries, to be your ambassadors. Father, we pray, God, that you would burn a fire in our heart that, that just causes us to have a, your love for other people. And God, show us in our lives what adjustments we need to make to be faithful 
and carrying out the job that you've given us to do. Beautify our lives, Lord, and, and beautify it in a way that someone else can begin to see and to be drawn in. Use us. You've chosen us, and choose others. So use us. Make, us. make us your mustard seed magnets. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's missionaries said, Amen. God bless you guys. Go. Be magnetize the world. Hello, lovely people. I'm so glad that uh, you took the time to listen to the message. It's an honor to be able to speak into uh, your life, and I, I appreciate it. Remember that song you, you, you may have learned in grade school? This land is your land. This land is my land. To the California, to the... That one? Uh, well, uh, just always remember, isn't this an awesome sweater I got? Uh, that uh, uh, if you're a white European, you stole it. All right, so so that, I mean, that's the way this fallen world works. But never forget that uh, well, I, it has nothing to do with what I was going to add to the sermon. I wasn't going to. You know, I just happened to be wearing this, and I thought I'd, I'd show you. All right, uh, two things I would like to uh, say uh, that I didn't get a chance really to say much of uh, in the message. All right, uh, this is going deeper with Pastor Boyd. So the first thing has to do with this. Um, if you're a teacher and you're leaving your students, um, the, the thing you really, 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 really want them to remember is the thing you're going to say last. Last word, going away, here's what I want you to know. And what's the last thing Jesus says to us when he leaves? It's the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19. Go forth and make disciples of all nations. Last word. Um, and I'm with you always as you do that to the end of the age. Uh, this is this says something about the heart of God that uh, reaching out to lost, uh, sharing the good news, uh, is not a secondary thing. Uh, it's not an addendum. Uh, it is uh, the very essence of, uh, of of what we're called to, to be and what we're called to do. Uh, we don't exist for ourselves. We exist for the sake of others. We're saved not just for ourselves. We're saved for vocation, and that is to share Christ with others. Which isn't a bunch of street evangelism stuff. It's about our being who we are, and making space for others to witness that. Then I wanted to add something about John 17. Just touched on a little bit in the message, but I'd, I'd like to go deeper with it. This is just the most beautiful prayer uh, that John, Jesus prays in, in, in John 17. And it's just packed with such great theology. Uh, here's, here's how it goes. It's, Jesus prays, My prayer is not for them alone, referring to his disciples. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. He's got a message. Uh, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. So our message is our unity. And that unity is the mirror the, the, the triune God. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, I in them and you in me, he says, uh, so that they may be brought to unity. That's a, kind of like a poem there. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to unity in the Trinity. Don't you see? How can it be? I gotta move on here. Then goes, then the world, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You've loved them. Okay, look at it. Uh, a couple things about this. One is first note that, that Jesus' heart is not just for his disciples, it's for the whole world. Father, I pray not just for them, but for the whole world. God's heart is always toward us, but also through us towards the world. And you can't separate those two things. Uh, the church needs to have the heart of God on this. Uh, the heart is to be reaching out to others to share uh, this, this beautiful thing that we have in Christ, uh, to share it with others. The second thing is that Jesus prays that 
uh, we would be one even if he and the Father are one. Uh, our unity, our, our unity is to be a unity of love, which is very different than a unity of conformity or a unity of homogeny. Uh, no, it's, it's, a, it's a unity that transcends that. It's a unity that's supposed to mirror the, the perfect love of the triune God. Think about that. And in fact, that it's, a, it's a unity that's supposed to participate in the love of the triune God. Uh, Jesus prays that we would be one in him. And then he says that they would be one in us. So we are in the triune God, and that's how we are made one. We participate in the love of the triune God. We receive the love of the triune God, and then the love of the triune God flows through us back. And so we're, we're part of this dance. We participate in it. That's why Jesus says that uh, he prays that we would uh, be know that we're a lo- we are loved with the same love that the Father has for the Son. Same love. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 1.6, uh, that we're loved in the Beloved. So we're put in Christ, and in the, the, in the process of loving Christ, uh, the Father loves us. It's not a secondary love. It's the one and the same act. <laughs> uh, God is, throughout eternity, the act of this triune love, and we are placed in that. In fact, think about this. This, this, this brings you to the, the bestest, bestest, bestest of the best news. Um, that that uh, w- God, uh, to, out of his love for us, he, he, he goes an infinite distance out of himself, and enters into our humanity. That's who Jesus is. He's God made man. And then he goes even further and enters into our sin and our curse and our God forsakenness on the cross. So God demonstrates his love to us by entering into our God forsakenness. Why? So that we can then participate in his unity. He takes on our disunity, our separation from himself, in order that we can take on his union with himself. Ha! It's beautiful. And you see the perfection of God's love on the cross because there's an infinite distance that he travels. He couldn't have gone further than he went out of his love for us, which just shows us that his love could not be made more perfect than it is. Uh, The infinite distance God crossed to reach us shows the infinite perfection of his love for us. He takes on our God-forsakenness that we can then uh, participate in his unity. it's just, it's just fantastic. We, he couldn't have gone farther from himself to love us so that we could not possibly get closer to him and participate in his love for us. Okay, it's just, you can chew on that the rest of eternity. It's beautiful. Then he, Jesus, the third thing is, is, is that Jesus says that uh, he, 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 he prays this so that the world will know that he is sent from the Father. Uh, so the, uh, even our loving unity, participating in the triune God, isn't an end in itself. It's a love that uh, is, is for the sake of others. It's like God, out of his love, uh, he, didn't, he didn't contain it. He overflows in love towards us. And so also, uh, our, our, our unity isn't to be an end in the, of itself. It's to outflow towards others. That's one of the ways we mirror the triune God. God is a love that flows out towards others. And um, as we participate in that love, then we naturally flow out towards others. All of that to say, we reflect the heart of God when we make space in our life to include others. And the final thing is that Jesus says that he has given to us the glory that the Father gave him before the foundation of the world. Um, There is so much screwed upness around this concept of God's glory. Uh, You know, if you read... Uh, any of the Reformed catechisms, um, Heidelberg, Synod of Dort, or just read a lot of Reformed works, uh, you know, that's the whole Calvinistic strand. Um, what, you'll often hear things like this all over the place. 
God, God glorifies himself. And God glorifies himself by decreeing whatever he wants to decree. That's his glory. His glory is his power. And he only glorifies himself. Everything he does is out of self-love. Um, and so if he decrees that people are damned, it's for his glory. And if he decrees that the Holocaust occurs, it's for his glory. Everything's for his glory. Rapes are for his glory. Wars are for his glory. Uh, plagues are for his glory. Everything's for his glory. Well, Jesus here says, I've given to them uh, the glory that you gave me. It's a glory he gives away. That's a very, I, I submit to you that the, the true glory of God is the opposite of what those very well-intentioned, sincere uh, folks with unsurpassable worth in that tradition say. It's the opposite of that. Uh, Jesus glorified the Father. He says, read John 12, uh, when he's lifted up on a cross. Uh, the glory of God is, is his love. It's his self-sacrificial love. That's why God is most glorified when Jesus is on the cross. Um, it's the time when his uh, self-sacrificial love is most put on display. And see, that kind of glory, as I just said about God's love, the, the glory is just the shininess of that love. And so it's a love that gives itself away. And it's not this, I, I, I only glorify myself, and so I'm going to send you to hell for my glory. Uh, no, it's, it's God giving himself away to us on the cross. And then and when God, Jesus gives us his glory, we do the same thing. We give ourselves away. We sacrifice for others. Uh, and that's, that shows the character of God. Well, folks, that's enough. Think on that, chew on that, pray on that. Most importantly, let's all uh, ask God to help us live it. Because that's where the rubber hits the road. Okay, God bless. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.